0: Are you a PT looking to be a part of the discussion around the future of healthcare? If so, you should join us at a line conference this year. Go ahead and clear your schedule for August 25th through the 27th and join Evidence in Motion in Louisville, Kentucky. We'll be featuring an all-star lineup of keynote speakers discussing the future of healthcare, along with several hands-on labs and experiences across many different topics, including pain science, dry needling, blood flow restriction, and more. The coolest part? We're offering our podcast listeners $100 off the registration when you use code JOSPT100. Early bird pricing ends soon, so register now. Learn more at AlignConference.com. And remember to use code JOSPT100 and save $100 on your registration. welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today.
1: Dr. Mitchell Sellhorst is a physical therapist and clinical researcher, as well as director of research at Nationwide Children's Hospital in the Sports and Orthopedic Physical Therapy Department. He earned his PhD from Nova Southeastern University, and his research focuses on the treatment of overuse injuries in the youth athlete. Today, we're jumping into the first of a two-part epic series on treating young athletes with spondylolysis. Dr. Cell Horse breaks down active versus cold spondies, imaging recommendations, bracing, and even tells us why we should never be seeing a Scotty dog fracture these days. This episode blew my mind. I hope y'all enjoy it. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a US-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland.
2: And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Mitch. We're here to talk about spondees, particularly adolescent spondees. Before we really dive into this, can you just give us a quick rundown of the three different types of spondees? It's been a little while, and and I know I'm not the only one that gets these jumbled up.
3: I actually just gave a talk on this with our uh the sports academy and breaking this down where uh, spondy means spine and then we have our spondylolysis which means kind of degeneration or it's like a little breakdown we have our spondylolysis which is a lesion so it's a lesion in our spine or a kind of fracture line or starting to be a fracture line and then we have our spondylolisthesis which is a separation so that and uh, vertebrae is starting to actually translate forward, and you get a separation between the anterior and posterior segments of the vertebrae.
2: So, how common is this in adolescence? Like, hit, hit us with some numbers and some stats.
3: So, this is extremely common. If you are looking at an adolescent athlete with low back pain coming into your clinic, 30% of them have a spondy. Wow. That is a lot, yes. So it's less. Your 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 non-athletes, they're going to get pretty low if they have low back pain. It's it's going to be incidental findings, maybe uh, with kind of with the normal population of two to six percent.
1: Do you find that certain sports have higher prevalence rates? So, for instance, we did a, an episode on lacrosse players and found that it was, you know, that that's a common presentation. Are there other sports where you're like, yeah, OK, this is probably even higher? Uh,
3: a few years back, we looked at in the Midwest at our hospital in Columbus, Ohio, Nationwide Children's Hospital. We looked at five years or so, a thousand of our adolescent athletes with low back pain coming in. And how it rolled out with the back pain. And at that point in time, there was kind of this conce- misconception maybe that it's female gymnasts and dancers who are going to be your spondies, And that's not what we found. And that's actually not what other people are finding. What we're seeing and uh, other authors are confirming is that it's going to be your males. So they're going to be two to four times more likely than your females to uh, get that stress reaction. And it's going to be, think about an overhead throwing motion. It's it's going to be extension rotation. So lacrosse within that stick. Our number one was baseball, your baseball pitchers. They were the highest. And what you see in some of the European studies is throwing sports and track and field and cricket are the, kind of the top. But the thing that I found most interesting was, yes, we have that extension rotation from our throwing athletes, but also marching band was extremely high. Shout out to the band geeks. <laughs> if, if you're out there, if you're playing, if you're doing work, there's a high likelihood of you getting a spotty. Uh, We had 27 sports we're looking at. Only, only baseball was at an increased risk by, over any other sport. But they're, they were almost in the 50s to 60% range of low back pain in the spondy. It was pretty high, but everybody else was coming in in the upper 20s. So just because you're in band or just because uh, you might be, you know, in what you think is a non-spondy sport, it's, it's still pretty
1: likely in there. That blows my mind because I definitely remember learning like in school, it was, it was put into your brain, especially for like the test question of gymnast, female, spondy right? Yep. Like that was exactly as you said. And so th- those numbers are are super interesting.
3: Yeah. If you go back and look at where all that stems from, it's a great study, but they they looked back in Boston at a, a gymnast group. So they went into a gym, looked at a hundred gymnasts and they found a high rate of spondies, about 30%. So that's where it comes from is, but they were looking specifically at gymnasts and found a high rate. But when you look at sp- it's across the board, you see a similarly high rate in this population when you look for it.
2: Let's kind of pivot to what we're finding actually like practically on exams. So if we're evaling an adolescent with low back pain, what are we finding that we're thinking spondy? And then what are we finding? How do you make that decision about like, hey, let's do PT or like, hey, we should get imaging and like, you know, the levels of concern there would love to hear your insight on that.
3: So this is extremely tough because a spondy is going to present very similar to a musculoskeletal low back pain pain in their back. It can be usually focal right on that L5 going right across the back. But so does, you know, most of our other kids who come in with back pain. They have pain with running and jumping. They may have pain with sports, but so do our other kids with back pain. You may hear about some special tests like the single leg hyperextension test, and that's kind of paired with the spondy. But basically, all that tells us is the patient has pain while standing on one leg and bending backwards. So it really has poor sensitivity and specificity. So currently, our subjective, our history, and our clinical presentation aren't great at helping us distinguish between what is just musculoskeletal low back pain in our adolescent and what is a spondy in our low back pain or our spondy in our adolescent with low back pain. There are a few studies coming out, but they I gotta let you know, they're pretty low level. They need to be validated. So one was from us where we found that if you are a male, you have pain with extension and then you have a pain difference between active and resting pain of greater than three. Those are kind of signals that it could be, but it's not super specific. So we flipped it around. Think of the Ottawa ankle rules to help us rule out a spondy. So if you are a female and you don't have pain with extension, but you have low back pain or you don't have excessive pain with extension, we can be pretty sure that you're not a spondy. It's almost a 91% sensitivity. If you are a female and your resting pain is four and your pain with sports is five, that would also be the case. But we haven't validated that. That's kind of putting that through. There's a couple other studies that have done very similar things, and so they may help us guide us. But there's nothing definitive
1: at this point.
2: I love a gray area. Just living in the gray area. <laughs> Just freaking back pain, man, all ages.
1: And so, is imaging indicated in this kind of presentation? If you're not sure, if you're suspecting spondy, is that uh is that something that we jump right to, or you know, what are your thoughts on that?
3: So if you are working with your adolescent athlete and you're suspecting a spondy, the number one thing that differs from your traditional musculoskeletal pain is pulling them out of sport. So depending on where they're at in their season may change what you do or if you need imaging. So let's say as many of our kids do, they wait until the end of the season to come to be seen. Their season is over and they may have a break. Um, we can actually treat them. They're pulled out of the sport. We can treat them potentially without a, a definitive diagnosis. They're resting from sport and we're going to work them back up. So there isn't that big push for the sport. But on the other end, if they have a, a strong push to be in a sport, they need to be cleared. We need to be sure that they're going to be ready to go and not, you know, causing damage to their spine. Then imaging would be indicated.
1: And with imaging, can you talk about the difference between a cold spondy and active spondy, how those present on imaging, and then what does that mean both for healing as well as the, the actual care and interventions for the patient?
3: You've got your three kind of, you got your spondylolysis, your spondylolysis, and your spondylolisthesis, but in your ismic spondylolysis, you have different levels. I like to think about it as an active stress reaction and going into the stress fracture. And what that active means, frequently in research, is called acute. The reason why I like active is because it gets misconstrued with a timeline. When we think of low back pain, and at least when I was taught this, acute was 90 days or less, and chronic was more than 90 days. So it's frequently thought of as an acute injury, and it's a timeline. But the active active spondylolysis has biological healing going on in it. So if you're looking at the MRI, you can see edema around that fracture line, and there's a biological healing process saying that that still is healing. If we're looking at maybe a little older, or I guess our true gold standard of a spec with bone scan CT, we're going to see increased uptake with our biological healing. Now, on the other end, we have our chronic spondy, which is traditionally thought of. It's more of a cold spondy where there's no edema there's no increased uptake, there is no biological healing going on. There is 0% chance that that will heal when we look at that six months later. Okay. Whereas our active spondy, if we're looking, say, for bony union, depending if it's unilateral, bilateral, unilateral, we have about a 70% chance of achieving a bony union. With bilateral, it's it's much less. It's about 18% chance of a bony union. But Many clinicians are much more conservative when you have that active or acute spondy with edema or increased uptake because there's still a chance to achieve that bony union. Whereas if we have that cold spondy of no increased uptake or no edema, what we're going to see is no chance of healing. So a lot of times we're a little more aggressive with them because we're not worried about that bone healing process. So what's happened already happened. Most likely we'll probably have some scar tissue holding that together. It's nice and stable and they're having pain. So we got to work through that, but we don't have to worry about achieving bony union. And often when we're looking at our radiographs and when we see a spondy, if you can see it on the x-ray, most likely that means there's, it's already done with its healing process. There's, there's no real healing going on at that point. However, I'll let you know what we see often is we see a cold spotty and then they do a MRI as well. And you see a stress reaction on the other side. So we have a bilateral spotty. The left side is active and still has healing potential. And the right side is chronic and cold and had zero chance of healing. So when you maybe are getting those reports or another subdivision but if it's an active thing active healing process you just need to be a little bit more cautious slow things down a little bit where it's a more chronic i we typically treat those very similar to musculoskeletal back pain
1: and so you mentioned that if you get x-rays and you you see a spondy come back it's probably a cold spondylitis not one that's healing and so i suspect that if you're looking for an active spondylitis and the, X is, the x-ray comes back negative And if you believe that this knowledge is important and will guide care, then you need to follow that up. You need to follow that radiograph up with an MRI. Is that accurate?
3: That is accurate. So if we go kind of back with our x-rays, we're looking at our radiographs and, you know, if they see the spondy, it's there. Okay. There is a fracture line, but they're going to miss 70% of spondies. The the sensitivity is like 30%. It is low. It is nothing to, to use and the the lovely little story that I like with our radiographs is, and I learned this in PT school, and I still hear that people are learning this in PT school, which is great, but they learn the spondy as the Scotty dog with the collar on the neck, which is seen on an oblique radiograph and kind of your four view radiographs. And a few years back, I was on a webinar actually with Joe SPT. and we had some of our surgeons on board and they're like, it has been since 1970 that we've known that we should not do oblique radiographs. (laughs) So it's a nice story that you should be seeing the Scotty dog, but we should never really be seeing that Scotty dog uh, collar anymore because it just increases the rate of radiation. So there is clinical guidelines or systematic review looking at maybe what we should do by Tofty. What they recommend is a two-view radiograph. And then moving on to MRI imaging. And if you're looking at the sensitivity and specificity and diagnostic accuracy, CT still beats out MRI, but barely anymore. The reason why almost all clinicians go to MRI now is because there's no exposure to radiation. So we're looking at our diagnostic accuracy of our CT might be at 92%. And our MRI is now caught up and it's in the 90 91. So there's almost no difference and there's no exposure to radiation. There might be an increased cost comparatively. But if, again, we're looking at our practice patterns in that PRISM study that came out last year, 90% of providers are going to MRIs for their advanced imaging because we don't have that radiation exposure.
1: And so a very common presentation that we see in the clinic is a young adult with focal low back pain, nothing going down their leg, no neural symptoms, and a common intervention for that is spinal manipulation. And so if a, you know, 30% of these athletes are presenting with a spondy, is that an issue? Is that a cause for concern or is that not something to worry about?
3: Yes and no. So if you look at manual therapy, contraindications, it is a fracture. It is contraindicated. If you look at the forces you are putting through the back, it is much less than the force of sports. So kind of how I think of it is if I'm really suspicious of a spondy, we're pulling them out of sport and I'm not doing a lumbar manipulation. If they're still in sport, they're putting a lot more pressure through their spine every day on the field than I am with that lumbar manipulation. If they have a spondy, it's not going to help them, <laughs> but I'm not, I you know, um, that that playing on the field is is causing them more problems than that one, you know, sideline neutral gap manipulation may have. But, you know, from a true perspective, I sh- it should be contraindicated once you know and have a definitive diagnosis.
1: Well, that's a great, like, you know, just the, the gray area lends itself to good clinical decision making and your thought process on that is, I, I mean, sounds like it makes really good sense to me. When do you consider surgery in this patient presentation?
3: Just to be sure, I did a PubMed search today of maybe what's come out in the last year, maybe so I'm not missing anything. Like, you guys could be tricky and like, hey, this guy uh, published this and you don't even know about it. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, we're very intimidating. Yeah, yeah, awesome. yeah.
3: If you look at the research of spondylolysis, I would say more than 90% is surgical research. However, when you look at actually what happens in real life, 99.9% is conservative care treated successfully along the way. So we have no need of surgical stabilization in our adolescent athlete until they have failed six months of conservative care. So we have worked with them, we have tried bracing, we have tried resting, we have tried physical therapy and that is when it's indicated that six months is for a surgical consult. So surgery for a spinal lysis is not day one, not month one. It is six months and they're not improving. Okay. So that that's really comes in. Don't let the, maybe when you read the research, think that it should be mostly, it should be primarily conservative care with this patient population.
2: That's interesting, This the disparity. You mentioned bracing there and I wasn't in PT school like that long ago. And there was definitely a lot of people still like really on board of like the hard versus soft versus bracing. So when does that play into things?
3: There's no randomized control trial telling us not even one. We don't have a systematic review of randomized control trials. There is a systematic review done in 2009. I think Klein at all, if you want to look it up. But they did a review of retrospective studies and clinical case studies looking at it. And what we find here is there's no benefit to bracing, okay? So hard braces, where we're really trying to protect that spine. Our lumbar corsets, where we're just maybe trying to provide a little bit of comfort and stability and restrict a little bit of motion. I would say when I started at our hospital back in 2009, everybody was braced. Now... If I see a brace, something has gone wrong with that patient. Lumbar corset is more like if they if they're still having a little bit of pain, struggling, they might get that little wrap on to help them out. But if I see a TLSO, that person was playing basketball when they're not supposed to, and the doctor just locked them down. We don't see bracing too often, but if you maybe are treating at another part of the country, another part of the world, bracing may be the standard. If you we look at that Prism study that I referenced earlier. Of clinicians and treatment patterns, it's a split 50 50 down the middle. So 50% of our clinicians are using bracing and the other 50% are not. So there's some biomechanical studies looking back and seeing what happens at our lumbar spine when we brace. We're trying to lock down, think of it as casting, let that fracture line heal up. But if we look at biomechanically what happens at L4 and L5 when we put the brace on, Oddly enough, it increases the stress at those levels. So maybe what's happening there isn't what we want to be happening. It's probably we're getting activity restriction rather than truly locking it down. But when they're looking in a lab and with the brace, they're seeing increased stress levels at L4 and L5, where uh, 90% of our lysis occur. I will say over the last few years two or three i've seen some studies out of japan where they're getting healing rates of 90 plus percent while using bracing which is much higher than has previously been reported but they're using only very specific patients and those are your early stress reactions so they're not the full lesion they're not the lysis they're it's not cherry picked but it is your optimal patient for healing so i can't say if they're getting better Healing rates than you would if you only looked or you didn't look at bracing because we don't have a comparative group. We don't have a randomized control trial. But in the last couple of years, we've seen a few studies where we do have bony union and a full heel in 90 some percent of our patients with the use of hard bracing.
2: I was going to say it's just helpful to know that it's not, it doesn't change the therapy you do, right? So that's, that's good to know. Whether the surgeon recommends it or not, we can't fight that, but it doesn't right. change the therapy that we do.
3: Yeah, we have sure. our patients take the brace off. And you know, go on from there. the The one thing I'll say is, if we get a surgeon who does a TLSO, which some, if you look at the restrictions on a TLSO or how often they're supposed to, it's like twenty three hours a day. Yeah, well, like so, maybe be encouraging. You know, you can do it, but it's hot, it's sweaty, it is not fun being in those. Um, So be. Kind and supportive because if you got them from another doctor or they went to another doctor and they might not be in that brace at all. If they're maybe cheating out of that brace, don't come down on them too hard. I would probably be right there with them.
1: That's really good advice, especially because we don't see braces a ton these days. So just having that kind of background on that is, is really helpful. All right. And that concludes our first episode with Dr. Mitch Sellhorse. Make sure to check out episode two, where we dive into clinical application, as well as a three-phase rehabilitation guideline for bringing athletes all the way from the initial phase of isolated training to integrated training to return to sport. Thank you so much to Dr. Mitch Sellhorse for his time and for sharing his expertise with all of us. And as always, thank you for listening to JOSBT Insights.